calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Insidii. Part 1. Arrival. Things didn't go exactly as he'd planned. Martin's retirement and subsequent move to the wide-open solitude of nature wasn't unfolding like the Walden Pond fantasy he'd imagined, full of gratification and self-reliance, and a constant wonderment at the majesty of the natural world. No, it was more like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. That is to say, it was lonely and uncompromising, full of unseen threats. He had been living in Rittenberg, Alaska for only two months, and already he was beginning to doubt his ability to survive retirement there. Sure, it was beautiful, full of snow-capped mountains and untouched rocky outcroppings that descended into the sea like the backs of sleeping titans. At first, he felt in many ways like he was finally living in the habitat where he was always meant to exist. He had finally eschewed the trappings of city life. He was no longer a member of the urban sprawl, the great paving of the American West. No more was he caught up in the drama of so-called friends and family, and, most importantly, he was no longer a slave to the almighty employment machine. After retiring from the insurance agency where he'd whittled away at 32 years of his life, Martin had found a secluded ranch for sale, nestled amongst the coastal mountains of southwestern Alaska. 
He felt a wave of peace come over him when he'd flown in to take a look at the property. Acres of bright green foothills spread out beneath him, and through the window of the airplane he could see, miles away, where the hills gave way to the rocky shoreline. This is the place, he told himself, having not even stepped foot on the property yet. But when he got there, and the listing agent drove out to meet him in a boxy old Land Rover, his intuition was only strengthened. Every square foot of the cozy ranch seemed to give off a welcoming glow. When he signed the papers and began the process of moving his stuff up to the property, it seemed as though he was fulfilling some crucial step in his journey through life. A new chapter was beginning, and it held endless possibilities. But how quickly his resolve faded. How quickly he went from feeling liberated to feeling lost. And all it took was a simple injury. Martin was partaking in his longtime hobby, the admittedly odd but usually harmless pastime of staring into the night sky. He had taken a beach towel and laid it down on the end of his property that butted up against the road. Cars didn't drive by often, and there were no streetlights to speak of, so he had a pristine view of the stars. He had been looking at the stars for as long as he could remember, his whole life it seemed. And to anyone that knew him, he was a kind of amateur astronomer. Using only simple telescopes, he had memorized all the major constellations, could point out any visible planets, and always knew the location of the International Space Station. Though he wasn't just interested in being a cosmic cartographer, Making mental maps of the stars was fun to him, but the true reason he stared at the sky, night after night, was because he wanted to see something else. Something undiscovered. Most people would call what he was looking for a UFO, but he felt that the concept denoted by that acronym was too simple to fully capture the essence of the phenomena. UFO was a loaded term, one that conjured the image of little green men and shiny silver discs, None of that speculation seemed adequate to him. He never had the pleasure of witnessing a UFO firsthand, but he had seen enough impressive footage and read enough reports to know that whatever was happening in the sky, it was far too abstract and fickle to be attributed to spacemen flying here from other planets aboard their ships. The very concept of UFOs, he thought, was an invariably human concept, colored by our limited understanding of the universe. It had something to do with consciousness, he thought, something to do with the reality of nature itself. In truth, he knew very little about what could be causing the UFO phenomena, and he had made peace with the fact that he probably always would. But whatever the cause for the lights in the sky, whatever was responsible for the strange things that people had been reporting for basically all of recorded history, he only knew that he wanted to witness it. If he could just lay his eyes on it, whatever it was, he imagined that the world would feel whole, complete, connected to something that was bigger. And it just so happened that on that night, laying in the meadow on his newly acquired Alaskan property, he did witness something he couldn't explain. Or, at least, he thought he did. There was a sudden flash on the eastern end of the night sky, his eyes were drawn in the direction that the flash emanated from, and there he saw three bright lights, seeming to move in a fixed, triangular formation. He stood, 
trying to get a closer look at the lights. Eyes fixed, he crept through the meadow, keeping his figure low as to not raise the awareness of the lights. Awareness, he suddenly thought to himself. Where did that word come from? What was it about the lights that made him so certain there was an intelligence behind them? Perhaps it was the way they moved, or the tight triangular shape they maintained. He didn't know. But something about them seemed fundamentally different than natural phenomenon. The lights didn't flow freely like the aurora borealis. They weren't chaotic or jagged like lightning. The lights moved concisely, seeming to follow a predetermined path, often making sharp turns at what appeared to be a very high speed. Suddenly, his feet were no longer beneath him. As he'd been walking, eyes captivated by the lights in the sky, he'd slipped on a wet rock. His arms pinwheeled while he tried to retain balance, but the slip was too sudden a motion for him to rectify. He tumbled down the steep embankment that led to the road, his ankle snapping like a dry twig on the way down. When he finally stopped tumbling and righted himself, he was sitting on the shoulder of the road. His vision was blurry, eyes packed with dirt. Something warm and sticky trickled down his face. He could feel various nicks and scratches on his arms and legs, and a steady throbbing thumped in his lower back. But none of it held a candle to the pain in his ankle. He had heard the bone snap on the way down, knew it was broken, and that it would be nearly impossible for him to hobble back to his house and call an ambulance. All he could wish for, lying there on the side of the road, was that he would soon go into shock, or that somebody would drive by and see him. As it turned out, he got both his wishes. He had just closed his eyes, feeling a pleasant confusion washing over him, when a bright blue and red strobe began to pulse through his eyelids. A kind of horror gripped him for a moment when he considered that the lights he'd seen in the sky were returning. But when he drew his heavy eyelids open, he was relieved to see Sheriff Ryan Merkel walking towards him. He didn't remember much about his trip to the hospital. He was blathering about the lights, he knew, trying and probably failing to convince the sheriff of what he'd seen. Maybe it was just a drone, the sheriff suggested. No, Martin insisted. If you'd seen it for yourself, you'd know. You'd know that there are things out there beyond our comprehension. The sheriff just smiled coyly, ostensibly unconvinced by Martin's account. Martin became quiet, silently grilling himself for not filming the lights. He'd had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and in his dumbstruck awe, he'd completely failed to document it to come away with some kind of proof. How could he have been so stupid? His frustration soon faded, though, because within a few minutes of arriving at the hospital, Martin was floating through a morphine cloud. And the lights, and the sheriff, and even his broken ankle were all drifting farther and farther away, until they constituted nothing more than a series of vague and trivial memories. Part 2 Infection. As he lay in the hospital bed, Martin could think only about how badly he wanted to go home, how badly he wanted to drink coffee out of his favorite mug, to plop down on the couch and eat a bowl of ice cream, to lay in his own bed, wearing something more comfortable than a hospital gown. But when he was released, with a cast on his foot and an appointment to come back in two weeks and see how it was healing, 
Martin realized that home wasn't all that much better than the hospital. He was just as immobile at home, was in just as much pain. And at home, he didn't have any nurses tending to him. The worst part, though, was the boredom. He couldn't go anywhere, and since he was still new in town, he didn't know anybody that could come keep him company. What was I thinking, he wondered. Oh, just move on up to Alaska, Martin. Retire in the Yukon. It'll be great. What could go wrong? He shook his head, trying to snap himself out of the self-deprecating rhetoric. He had been staring at the same wall for the past 45 minutes. He needed something to do. He decided to hobble over to his computer, an old desktop that he'd taken with him on his move north. Suddenly, he was reminded of something that had happened on his drive. He was in central Alberta and had stopped for the night in a town called Red Deer. He had commented to the concierge at the hotel that he liked Red Deer, thought it was a quaint town, and that the people there seemed very nice. The concierge smiled and said that if he'd ever like to check up on them and see how they're doing, there was a webcam that broadcast 24-7 from the town's main strip. After booting up his computer, he pulled up Google and typed Red Deer Alberta Webcam. In no more than a few clicks, he was back in Red Deer, watching people peruse the town's main drag, the Red Deer River flowing slowly through the background. There was no sound, and the footage was grainy, but for some reason, watching the feed was exciting to him. Maybe it was because he'd grown so bored since his injury that just about anything could fascinate him. Or maybe it was because there was some unspoken thrill in having a first-hand view of another place in the world. He didn't know. He knew only that he felt a kind of nostalgic joy watching the feed. He thought about the people that he was watching, and it made him even more curious. What were they all doing? Where were they going? Some, he guessed, were probably on their lunch break at work. Others, perhaps, were grabbing an after-school snack. Still more, like him, were probably retired, filling their time with window shopping and scenic walks. He felt like a bit of a voyeur, watching them all. But that feeling soon faded, and he looked on with childlike wonder as the mundane happenings of Red Deer unfolded before his eyes. He realized, sitting there, that there were probably places all over the globe that broadcast live webcam feeds. He could probably tune into New York City, the California Redwoods, a quiet beach in Florida. He could probably jab his finger at a spinning globe and tune into a live feed of wherever that place was. In almost no time, Martin went from curious to infatuated. He viewed live webcams from all over the world, bookmarking the ones that he enjoyed the most. He watched people trek the Great Wall of China, watched thunderstorms roll across a beach in Indonesia, he looked at people walking down the Strip in Las Vegas, and he saw people skiing in Aspen. The high-activity and exotic webcams were few and far between, though. In most of the feeds, the footage was anticlimactic. Some of them were indistinguishable from photographs. Long periods of time would pass, and nothing in the frame would even move. In truth, he couldn't have said what it was about the webcam feeds that he found so engaging. He knew that it was an odd way to spend one's time, and yet he couldn't look away. Being that he was injured, 
Viewing the world through webcams was perhaps his only chance at witnessing something truly extraordinary, something beyond the limits of reason. Until that day came, though, he sat at his computer watching the feeds, if for nothing else than just to break up the slow monotony of his days. But one day, the monotony changed. Everything changed. Martin was watching a webcam feed that showed a lone farmer working in a field in Taos, New Mexico. Suddenly, a child entered through the left side of the frame, walking deliberately towards the farmer. And as the small person tread across the field, Martin felt an inexplicable sinking sensation in his gut. The child approached the farmer and seemed to gesture him over. The farmer, looking hesitant at first, lowered himself to the child, and Martin watched as the boy appeared to whisper something in the farmer's ear. After a few seconds, the farmer stood, nodded once at the child, and turned and began walking towards a nearby water tower. Taking what looked like a long coil of baling wire, the farmer fashioned one end into a loop while crimping the other end around the tower's girder. Martin looked on in horror as the farmer removed his hat to slip his head through the wire loop he had just crafted. The man climbed up a hay bale that was situated at the base of the water tower, wound up the slack in the wire, and leapt off the hay bale. Martin watched the farmer's body swing limply below the water tower for only a few seconds before his shaking hand reached up and turned off the monitor. What the hell did I just see? Martin wondered. Some kind of practical joke? One of those prank YouTube videos? A bizarre kind of performance art? He didn't know. But he couldn't get over how genuine the footage looked. And if it was genuine, who was the child? And what had he said to the farmer to make him hang himself? A few hours later, when Martin finally found the goal to turn his monitor back on, he was expecting the feed to have been shut off. But it wasn't. And to his surprise, there were no police lights flashing in the background, no caution tape cordoning off the area. The farmer's corpse had disappeared, and the child was gone as well. It was as if it had never happened at all. For the remainder of the night, Martin searched news websites, trying to find a report on the suicide. But he could find no mention of a body being found anywhere on the farm or anywhere else in Taos for that matter. He supposed that it would take the news cycle a while to cover it, but even when he checked back the following morning, there was still no coverage of the chilling event. He decided to call the Taos Police Department and report what he'd seen. The operator calmly collected his statement and told him that he would hear back if there were any developments. Nothing ever came of it, though. When he called back later that evening, the police department told him that they'd sent a patrol car out to the farm, but had found nothing suspicious. None of the farm's staff were missing, and there was no evidence of a crime anywhere on the property. Martin was dumbfounded. Had he been mistaken? Had he misconstrued what he'd seen? Was he losing his mind? The questions kept pushing their way into his head. Eventually, he decided to turn off his computer and take a dose of the pain medication he'd been given for his broken ankle. His ankle was in a reasonable amount of pain, 
But the real reason he took the pills was because he knew that the opiated bliss would offer an escape from the frightening images taking root in his mind. As he drifted off to sleep that night, he relished in the glowing warmth that surrounded him. He vowed that he would wake up in the morning having left the whole episode behind him. Part 3. Cultivation The day passed in a slow crawl. It was a long, drawn-out duel with boredom. He spent most of it rereading his collection of John Cheever stories, but aside from The Swimmer, which was perhaps his favorite short story of all time, few of the tales managed to capture his attention. Though he had managed to stay away from his computer for the entirety of the day, he found it nearly impossible to fully honor the promise he'd made to himself the night before. It seemed like there was no way for him to forget about what he'd seen on the webcam in Taos. And once he finally admitted that to himself, his conviction began to crumble. Would it really be so bad to look at some of the live feeds he'd been following? What if he saw the child again? And if a crime had taken place, despite what the Taos Police Department insisted, he had a chance of identifying the child, of making sure it didn't happen again. He thought about the farmer, hanging beneath the water tower, shuddering as the life went out of him, the thin line of bailing wire beginning to cut through the flesh of his neck. And it was that mental image alone that finally drew him back to the computer. He squinted his eyes as he stared at the monitor, scanning through webcams set in populated southwestern areas. Exactly what he was expecting to see, not even he was entirely sure. And he knew that if he was trying to catch the culprit, there was probably a more efficient way of doing so. The odds of the child stepping in front of another live webcam at the exact moment that Martin happened to be watching were extremely small. But still, he had a lurking suspicion that if he searched for long enough, he would find what he was looking for. For the following three days, he stared at his computer screen until his eyes began to throb. He felt like a man possessed, driven by a lonely obsession, only eating when absolutely necessary. And even after all that, there was still no sign of the child he'd seen whispering in the farmer's ear. Not knowing what else to do, he decided to give up. It was early on a Tuesday morning, and he was getting sleepy after staying up through the previous two nights. He reached his thumb out to turn off the monitor, but just as he did, something stopped him. He wiped his eyes, suddenly on edge, not sure if he could trust what he was seeing. On his computer was a live feed of a webcam in Spring Mountain, Nevada. The sun had just come up, and a lone tourist was taking in the view. Or, at least the tourist was alone, until a child walked into the frame and joined him. It was a different child than the one he'd seen before. The one in Taos had been a young boy, and this time it was a girl. But something about the way she moved seemed strikingly familiar. She walked up to the tourist, who was standing beneath a tree next to where he'd parked his car, and gestured to him, just as the boy had done to the farmer in Taos. The tourist bent over and listened patiently as the girl whispered in his ear. Then, when she had finished speaking, he held up a single finger to her, as if to say, just a minute. He walked around to the trunk of his car, opened it, and removed a pair of jumper cables. 
Martin didn't need to watch in order to know what was about to happen, but he watched anyway. He watched in helpless terror as the tourists climbed up the tree and secured one end of the jumper cables to a thick branch. And he kept watching as the man looped the other end around his throat. Without a wink of hesitation, the man heaved himself from the tree. The body swung, colliding with the trunk of the tree and sending chips of bark flying every which way. The young girl looked on from where she stood in the bottom left corner of the frame. Then, after taking a brief look around, she exited the same way she had come. Martin managed to catch a glimpse of her face just before she disappeared. And what he saw there, he thought, was a look of total satisfaction. Martin picked up his phone, planning to call the Spring Mountain Ranger Station. But when he thought about it, he guessed that they would probably be just as useless as the police had been in Taos. No, he needed to call someone he knew, someone he trusted. He dialed Sheriff Merkel, the officer that had saved him when he'd broken his ankle. When the sheriff picked up, Martin hesitated. What was he even supposed to say to the man? Sheriff Merkel, he muttered finally. It's Martin Gaddis. Martin, the sheriff said. What can I do for you? His voice was pleasant, if not a little surprised. A few seconds passed, and then the sheriff added, How's your ankle, by the way? It's fine, Martin said, brushing the question aside. Listen, sheriff, I need you to look into something. After a deep breath, Martin explained what he'd seen in Taos and then again in Spring Mountain. He was surprised at how receptive the sheriff was to his story. He half expected to be laughed at or hung up on, but the sheriff listened patiently. When he had finished talking, he endured a brief and humbling pause. I appreciate you trusting me with your story, the sheriff said, but I'm not exactly sure what you want me to do with the information. I'm a sheriff in Alaska. The events you're describing are well outside my jurisdiction. And that's if a crime has even taken place. What do you mean? Martin asked. Well, it's not against the law to hang yourself, as gruesome as that may sound. And... And what? Martin asked. And I just wonder if... The sheriff paused. Martin, do you remember when you broke your ankle? Do you remember all the stuff you were telling me about seeing lights in the sky? Martin sighed, already keen to where the sheriff was going with this. Is it possible that you're seeing extraordinary things because you want to believe they exist? The sheriff asked. Trust me, sheriff, Martin said, his voice somber. I don't want to believe this. Nobody would want to believe the things I've seen. Okay, the sheriff said, his tone apologetic. I'm just wondering if maybe you got yourself worked up and... You know what, Sheriff? Martin interjected. I think you're right. I think I just got worked up. He apologized for taking up the sheriff's time and offered a few more pleasantries before hanging up the phone. After setting the phone on the coffee table, he lay down on the couch and fell into a deep and dreamless sleep. When he awoke, he almost immediately returned to his computer. There was work to be done evidence to be gathered. He had tried hard to make the sheriff believe that he'd been mistaken, but deep in his core, he still knew what he'd seen. Part 4. Harvest When it happened again, 
Martin would be ready. He had his screen capture tool all set, so he could record whatever was displayed on his monitor. Then, when he brought the footage to the sheriff, the evidence would be undeniable. No longer would he be scoffed at or disregarded as a UFO nut. He would reveal the sick truth, the things that these children were doing to hapless bystanders. Although, when he thought about it, he knew that it wasn't really children that were responsible for this, but things that looked like children. He was prepared to sit and watch for as long as it took. The lonely obsession that drove him was uncompromising in that way. But, as fate would have it, he didn't have to wait very long at all. He happened to be watching a live feed of a golf course in Scottsdale, Arizona, when something seemed out of place. Or not something, exactly, but someone. A child, bearing no resemblance to the first two he'd seen, emerged from behind a tree and began walking calmly across the fairway. The child arrived next to a golfer who seemed to be looking for his ball, and Martin began recording. Just as he had with the previous two times, Martin found himself unable to look away, even though he knew what was about to happen. Gripped by a paralyzing fear, he looked on as the golfer rose to his feet, undid his belt, and looped it around a low-hanging tree branch. Because there was nothing in the area that was high enough to suspend him off the ground, the golfer simply placed his head through the loop and let his body go limp. His weight cinched the belt tight around his neck, and the man's face turned a bright, shiny red. When the life had gone out of him, Martin transferred the footage to a flash drive, grabbed his crutches, and hobbled out to his car. He started the engine, but before backing out of the driveway, something stopped him. He turned the car off, hobbled back inside, and grabbed a 10-inch hunting knife that he kept in his garage. Sliding the knife below the cuff of his boot, Martin headed back out to his car. When he arrived at Sheriff Merkel's house, his heart was racing. Nothing he had ever experienced could have prepared him for that moment. But he didn't hesitate. He slid the flash drive into his pocket, stepped out of his car, and began limping towards the sheriff's front door. Merkel must have seen him approaching through the window because he pulled the front door open before Martin even had the chance to knock. Martin, the sheriff said, perplexed. What are you doing here? Is everything okay? I have something you need to see, Martin said. He was surprised at how deliberate and confident the words sounded coming out of his mouth. The sheriff looked skeptical, but invited him in all the same. Perhaps he felt sorry for Martin, or perhaps he just didn't want to be rude by turning the man away. Regardless, he seemed to be acting out of obligation and concern, rather than genuine interest in whatever Martin had to say. The sheriff led Martin into his kitchen, which was adjacent to the dining room where his wife and their son were still eating dinner. I have proof, Martin said, pulling out the flash drive and placing it on the kitchen counter. The sheriff regarded it. Proof of what? he asked. Proof that some thing is out there coaxing people into hanging themselves. I caught it on video. The sheriff turned towards the dining room, eyeing his wife, whose face was growing increasingly concerned. Acting on instinct, the sheriff took Martin by the arm and guided him out into the backyard. I'm sorry, he said. Let's talk out here. I don't want to upset my family. 
I usually try to leave work stuff at work. I'm sorry too, Martin said, but this is urgent. People are dying. At least three, but I would guess there's probably more. Who knows how many? Okay, the sheriff said, trying to emote a calm demeanor. I'll tell you what. Why don't you come into the station tomorrow morning, first thing. I'll watch the footage. We'll fill out an official report. We'll get to the bottom of this. But Martin was already shaking his head. No, he insisted. This needs to happen now. Fine, the sheriff said. I'll watch the footage, but that's all. We can figure out what to do about it in the morning. As they walked back inside, Martin noticed that the sheriff's son, a boy of seven by the name of Joseph, had risen from his spot at the table and was now standing in the kitchen, fiddling with the flash drive. Martin snatched it out of the boy's hands, affording him a cold look from the sheriff. Go finish your dinner, buddy, the sheriff said to his son. Daddy's got to take care of something. I'll be back in a minute. He led Martin down the hall to his home office, pulling his laptop out of a shoulder bag that lay on the ground. The two men sat at his desk, and Martin watched in silence as the sheriff slid the flash drive into his computer. The video began to play, but it looked oddly unfamiliar to Martin. It showed the same fairway of the same golf course, but the golfer he'd watched hang himself was nowhere to be seen. Instead, an elderly couple played through the frame before hopping back in their golf cart and proceeding towards the green. A few more seconds of uneventful footage passed before the footage abruptly ended. No, Martin said. That's impossible. I watched it happen. I recorded it. Rewind it. Play it again. But the sheriff only wiped his eyes and sighed. Martin, he said. Look, I'm not judging you. But is it possible that you were mistaken? Or when you had your accident, you suffered some kind of... Martin rose to his feet, finding the sheriff's sympathy impossible to endure. He pulled the flash drive out of the computer and slid it back into his pocket. Offering an approximation of an apology, he hobbled out of the room and made his way back towards the front door. But as he passed the dining room table, he made brief eye contact with the sheriff's son. Then it all became clear to him. The sheriff was following close behind him, saying something about a psychiatrist he knew. He does great work, the sheriff said. I can give you his number. Who knows, maybe he can... His words fell off as he watched Martin launch himself across the dining room and wrap his arms around his son. His wife began screaming and tumbled to the floor. When he looked back at his son, he could see that Martin had revealed a large hunting knife which he was pressing to the child's throat. Your son, Martin snarled. He did something to the footage. I saw him messing with the flash drive. He's one of them. Okay, Martin, the sheriff said. Let's, let's just calm down. Can we do that? His son was crying now. Can we put the knife down, Martin? What you need is help, and I can't get you help if you hurt my boy. But Martin was beyond listening at that point. He's one of them, he kept asserting, a thick sweat beginning to break out on his pale forehead. As the sheriff looked on, he tried hard to ground himself, to remember his training, but it all seemed unattainable. He had a sidearm on him, but there was no way he could get a clear shot at Martin without putting his son in the line of fire. Standing there, frozen in place and pondering his next move, he saw his wife stand rapidly from behind the table. 
Gripping a steak knife in her fist, she dove recklessly on top of Martin, a panicked scream escaping her lungs. Unable to maintain balance with only one good foot, Martin released the child and fell hard on his back. Mrs. Merkel landed on top of him, and as she did, the steak knife she was holding sunk deep into his throat, severing his jugular and sending hot streams of blood across the floor. A series of gurgling noises came from Martin's throat, and then his eyes began to glaze over. The sheriff scooped up his son, attempting to shield him from the grisly display. It's okay, he cooed. It's over. We're gonna be okay. Cradling his son in his arms, he pulled out his phone to dial the station. The child, still crying, gripped his father tight, holding him close as he leaned in and began to whisper something in his ear. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.